All right, good morning and welcome again. It's good to see you all. Uh, today we're beginning a brand new series on the parables. Uh, for the next seven weeks, we're going to be looking at these really powerful stories from Jesus' ministry. Uh, now, before we get into the series, I want to play a, a quick game with you guys. Uh, I'm going to show you a very simple picture. It's just a couple of like little icons that represents a classic childhood story. And I want you to look at the picture, and, and you don't have to raise your hand or anything. Just in your head, think about what story that picture represents. But most importantly, see if you can also think of the lesson or moral that goes along with that story. So let's start with a really simple one. Okay, you guys got it? You're like, yeah, yeah, I got that one. Okay, that one is the tortoise and the hare. So what's the moral of that story? Slow and steady wins the race, right? Yeah, you're like, yeah, I did it. Good job, good job, everyone. Okay, next one. Okay, how about that one? You guys got that? What's it, Dan? The boy who cried wolf. Yeah, and the lesson from that one, uh, not as you know, easily memorable, but basically don't lie or people won't believe you. Okay, next. Yes, that's easy, right? These are all pretty easy. I'm not trying to stump you. Okay, three little pigs. It took me a while to remember this, but there is a lesson that goes along with this story. Hard work pays off. Be like the last pig who builds the brick house. Okay, a couple more. Uh, this one stumped my wife. You got that one? Ugly duckling, yeah, good job. Okay, and that message is don't judge a book by its cover. Okay, last one. This one's a little bit tougher. That one? Yeah, oh, I hear it. It's a cat in the hat. It's a cat in the hat. You guys know the moral of that one? This is a really important one. Timeless, timeless value. Never, ever trust cats. <laughs> It's true. Think about it. That's, that's all it's saying. If you remember that, you'll be set for life. Okay, thanks for playing. Uh, that's all. But that game illustrates a very simple point, that stories are an amazing way to teach important lessons. They communicate truth in a way that kind of sticks with us, that makes sense to us, and, and they're memorable. It's easier for us to remember these morals and values. And perhaps no one in history understood this idea better than Jesus, the master storyteller. And Jesus had a very specific type of story he liked to tell called the parables. These were stories uh, from everyday life, stories that his listeners could relate to and understand. But most importantly, they were stories that contained powerful and memorable truth about the kingdom of God. These were ideas that challenged and sometimes even offended his listeners. Scholar uh, Albert Moeller once said that parables are a little bit like hand grenades. Now that's kind of a weird analogy, but he says basically that, you know, Jesus would tell these stories, and at some point he would pull the pin, toss it out, and wait for it to explode. This explosive, sometimes even dangerous truth for those who are listening. And so in this series, we're going to look at seven of these parables, seven powerful stories that Jesus told. Some of them are going to be pretty familiar. You'll, you'll recognize some. Some of them might be a little bit uh, more obscure, but all of them have in common this invitation for us to explore a kind of explosive truth together. 
So if you have your Bibles uh, with you today, turn, to me, turn with me to Matthew chapter 13. And today we're going to look at the very first parable that Jesus tells, the parable of the sower. Now before we dive in, uh, just a little bit of context. Matthew 13 comes at a critical point in Jesus' ministry. And understanding the timing of this parable is going to help us to understand a little bit about its purpose. Uh, in the beginning of Matthew 13, uh, Matthew tells us that Jesus tells this story from a boat. And the idea here is that there's such a large crowd has gathered that on one hand he needs a little bit of distance from the crowd so he's not overwhelmed by them, but also that the acoustics of the waters of this lake would help him to deliver his message without you know, a microphone. And so one of the things that Matthew wants us to understand, and one of the things that's developing is this idea of the crowd, this massive group of people who's begun to follow Jesus around, that's flocking to him. See, by this time, Jesus has been preaching and teaching. He's been on the scene for a while. He's doing miracles. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. And so people from all over are coming to see him. But these people are made up of a lot of different types of people with a lot of different motives and agendas. Now, on one hand, you have people like the disciples, people who genuinely want to follow Jesus. You have some who are just curious about him, maybe wanting to see what the next cool thing he's going to do is. Some are there out of hostility. The Pharisees are there to, to challenge him to provoke him. They actually want to trap him into saying something wrong. In fact, Matthew 12, the chapter right before this, is a series of three confrontations between Jesus and the Pharisees. It's likely that in this crowd you even have some of Jesus' family, because in the episode right before this, his family comes to this house and they, it says they want to see Jesus. Now in the Gospel of Mark, it tells us that it's likely that, th that they thought Jesus was beside himself, which basically means they think he's gone a little nuts and they're worried about his safety. And so within this crowd, you have you know, all this excitement, all this fervor building up, but you also have a lot of different kinds of people. And so there's this clear tension for Jesus. He has this mission to complete. He's trying to teach the message of the kingdom to those who want to follow him. But at the same time, you have all of these people who don't really want to hear what Jesus has to say. They might be listening, but they're not actually there to figure out what he wants for their lives. And so they're looking at him through the lens of their own expectation, their own hopes and dreams, their own well-being and security. And so as we arrive at the parable of the sower, this is kind of what Jesus is struggling with. This is the tension that he's wrestling with, the tension between the crowd and the disciples. And so in response to this tension, Jesus tells this story. Matthew 13, verse 1. That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore. Then he told them many things in parables, saying, A farmer went out to sow his seed. 
As he was scattering the seeds, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, and they withered because they had no root. Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants. Still other seed fell on good soil where it produced a crop, 160 or 30 times what was sown. Whoever has ears, let them hear. The disciples came to him and asked, Why do you speak to the people in parables? He replied, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. Though seeing, they do not see. Though hearing, they do not hear or understand. In them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. You will be hearing, but never understanding. You will ever be seeing, but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are you, blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, but did not see it, and to hear what you hear, but did not hear it. Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I got an email that kind of piqued my interest. Uh, the subject read, Fallout Boy, so much for tour dust on sale tomorrow. I know there's a lot to unpack in that subject heading. Fallout Boy is a popular punk rock band, and I'm not really sure why, but I'm a little ashamed to admit to you that I love Fallout Boy. I love them so much. Uh, they've been one of my favorite bands since I was 18. I remember listening to their music in my freshman dorm room at UCLA. Uh, there has been at least one Fallout Boy song on my running playlist for my entire adult life. I like Fallout Boy enough that I willingly signed up to be on their mailing list at some point. It is what it is. Judge me if you want to. I don't care. I like Fallout Boy. But this email announced basically that they're touring this summer and tickets were about to go on sale. Now again, I've, I've been listening to this band for about 20 years but I've never seen them in concert. And as uh, they get older, you know, it kind of occurs to me that there's this possibility that this could be my last chance to see them play live. And so when I got that email, I had this kind of initial pang of excitement. Like, man, maybe I should go. Maybe I should actually do it. 
But immediately I started to really think about it. And I started to think about driving to LA. I started to think about parking in LA. I started to think about how much it would cost and this possibility that I was gonna go and be the old guy at the Fall Out Boy concert. I didn't really wanna do that. And so the moment passed, the excitement faded, and I went on my day and completely forgot about this concert until I had to use it for a sermon illustration. And see, there is a big difference between being a fan and being a follower, being a part of a crowd who is kind of interested in something and being someone who is devoted to that thing. And this passage in Matthew 13 is interesting because in some ways it's, it's Jesus kind of drawing this line in the sand. As his popularity grows, as the crowds begin to swell, it, he says there's a difference between being a fan and being a follower. There's a difference between being part of the crowd and being one of my disciples. And, and there really is something kind of heavy about this passage, especially this, this middle section uh, where Jesus' disciples, they ask him, hey, why do you speak in parables? And he basically says, listen, only some really hear. Only some really see. Only some will understand the radical truth of the kingdom. But for others, they get nothing. They're unseeing, unhearing, unchanged. And Jesus says that in some ways the parables reveal this difference between the crowd and the disciple. For anyone who's following Jesus, the parables are where the rubber meets the road, where you have to ask yourself, what kind of follower am I? And this is really kind of the context or, or what the parable of the sower wants to address, the question that the parable wants us to wrestle with. And as Jesus looks out into this crowd of, of both crowd and disciples, he tells this simple story of the kingdom of God. And it's a story that, again, anyone in the crowd would have understood. They were living in a farming culture. And even for us, I think, who, who don't live in that kind of world, this makes sense to us. We understand the mechanics of growing and harvesting on the, the simplest level. But he tells this story of a sower or a farmer who goes out into his field and scatters a bunch of seed. And then he talks about these, these four different types of soil that the seed falls upon. Three of the types of soil are uh, unreceptive or unproductive. There's hard soil, rocky soil, thorny soil. And each one in its different way doesn't allow this seed to take root and grow. Fortunately, of course, the seed also falls on good soil where it's able to take root and produce this abundant crop far beyond the amount of seed that was sown. Now, as we read this and, you know, thinking about this context and this, this distinction between the crowd and the follower and the crowd and the disciple, it's natural to, to focus on this simple question. What kind of soil am I? Am I good soil or am I bad soil? Now, obviously, that's not a bad question. We do want to consider our response to Jesus' teaching. That's something he wants us to think about, how we receive the message of the kingdom. But at the same time, I think if we only focus on this question, 
the takeaway can be a little bit discouraging, a little bit hard to swallow, because at the end of the day, what do you do if you're not good soil? What do you do if you look at your life and you see more in common with the bad soil? If, if you feel that you know, connection with the, the worries of life and the deceitfulness of wealth, if you sense that maybe things aren't taking root, what do you do? Can you change? Can you become good soil? And if so, how? A lot of times we walk away from a parable like this with this takeaway of like just try harder. Listen better. Be a different kind of soil than what you already are. Stop being busy. Stop being distractive. And again, that's not the worst message, but I do think there's a deeper question. I think Jesus wants us to do more than just try harder or listen better. And so I think the question of the parable of the sower isn't just, what kind of soil am I? I think the real question that Jesus wants to consider is this, what do I believe about the sower and his seed? See, you know, the bulk of the narrative does focus on the soils. Most of the, the words, the verbiage is about these four different kinds of soils. But the main character of this parable is the sower. And the driving force behind the action is the seed. Before we consider the response of the soil, we have to understand what the sower and the seed are all about. We have to remember that this parable is not just talking about how we respond to Jesus' teaching. This is a parable of the kingdom of God. And it's painting a larger picture of how growth works and what God is doing in our life and in the world. See, Jesus wants us to see the abundance of the kingdom he's building. He wants us to see this life and growth and joy and restoration for his people and our world. And so when we think about it through this, this bigger picture lens, there are two things that I, I want to highlight that I think sometimes we miss. First, we see that the sower will accomplish his purpose for the soil. So I think one thing that sometimes we miss is, is the, the, the hopefulness, the, the grace in this passage, this idea that ultimately the seed will bear fruit. See, think about the end of this parable. I think sometimes we read this as an afterthought, but in many ways, this is really the point that Jesus is trying to get to. He says, in spite of all the stuff that happens with these four different kinds of soil, what's going to happen? Jesus is going to produce, the sower is going to produce this abundant crop. Far beyond what we can imagine. In fact, the abundance is shocking. 30 times, 60 times, 100 times the amount that was sown. See, this parable connects us to this larger New Testament promise that what Jesus is doing, what he's growing, what he will accomplish, is just amazing. It's so good. This vision of provision and abundance in the field. At the same time, though, there's another important truth that goes along with this. Yes, the seed produces abundance, but it does not easily take root. 
There's these two truths here, contrasting truths. The seed is really good, but it's also really hard. It doesn't take root in every situation. It takes time, care, and attention. And so this is really one of the points that Jesus wants his listeners to begin to wrestle with. Again, think about this crowd that's gathering, all these people that are coming to see Jesus. And he wants them to understand this message of the kingdom. It's awesome. It's for you. God can do so much in your life, but you need to understand that it's challenging. Jesus' teachings are full of grace and blessing, but they also call us to set aside their agendas. They, They pronounce judgment upon sin. They're controversial. The kingdom turns our whole lives upside down. And so I think the key question of this parable, in light of this contrast, the seed is good, but the seed is hard. The question that ultimately will define your response to Jesus' teaching and anyone's response to Jesus' teaching is this. Do I actually want the sower's seed? Do I actually want for my life this crop that Jesus wants to grow? Do I actually believe enough that this kingdom seed, that what the sower is planting, that it's good enough, that it's worthwhile enough, that the crop is important enough, that even though it's hard, even though it will challenge me, even though it might turn my life upside down, do I believe firmly enough in Jesus' vision of the kingdom to be the soil that Jesus wants me to be? This is what separates the disciples from the crowds, is that we actually have to want to be good soil. We have to want it. And, you know, I know that sounds kind of dumb or kind of obvious. Like, yeah, of course I want to be good soil. That's the whole point of the parable. But the question isn't, should I be good soil? It's not, what is the correct Sunday school answer to the question, what's the moral of this story? Instead, it's, do I, do, do me personally, Do I actually want that for my life? Do I want to be the kind of person that listens to, responds to, sits in obedience to all of this hard but amazing truth? And I think this is the hallmark of a disciple. It's not about trying to be good soil. The idea here is that we become good soil when we believe in the sower and his seed. See, when I was in seminary, uh, I actually did a a really big paper on this parable. And I have forgotten a lot of the stuff that I learned in seminary, I'm going to be honest with you. But for some reason, this paper always stuck with me. And I think one of the reasons is that I was really troubled by it. I remember reading this passage, uh, a parallel to this passage in Mark. And the author includes this jarring statement. Jesus says, The secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to those on the outside, everything is said in parables. And I remember thinking about this idea, this idea that Jesus was somehow dividing up his followers into insiders and outsiders, and just feeling a little bit unsettled by that. That again, the, you know, the, the, list, the insiders, they would listen, they would hear, they would understand, they'd be changed. And the outsiders, 
seemingly didn't even have a chance to do that. They wouldn't grow. They wouldn't be changed. And so I studied this really hard. You know, it wasn't just like an academic exercise. I really wanted to understand it. The conclusion I came to after weeks of study was so simple, but it kind of blew my mind. And it's, it's this, that the insiders are the ones who decide to be insiders. Now again, that sounds kind of dumb and kind of obvious, but it's kind of profound that people become outsiders because they decide to be outsiders because they actually don't want to hear. They don't really want the hard truth of the kingdom. They might keep listening, but on the inside, their hearts and minds are shut off to the truth. And people become insiders in many ways by simply wanting to hear. Like, like genuinely, for real, wanting it. They set aside their agendas. They accept that the truth is hard, and they invite it to speak. And so for them, because of this desire, God reveals mystery. They see and hear and understand because of this willingness to hear. And really, when you think about it, this is how all life works. This isn't a radical idea. You can't really understand something unless you want to understand it, at least at a heart level. Like, for example, I could stand up here and I could tell all of you guys, I could preach a message on how awesome running is. I could tell you, everyone should run at least five miles a day. Here is my 17-point sermon on why. It's fun, it's healthy, it's refreshing, it gives you time with God, it's good for your heart, it's good for all these different things. I could give you reason after reason. Now, a few of you might go out and run because I told you to run. You might change your schedule around, you might buy the best shoes, watch YouTube videos about your gait and your stride, but chances are, I'm just going to be honest with you, you're going to hate it. Because if you don't actually want to run, running is kind of horrible. It's not that fun if you don't want to do it. But here's, here's the bigger point. Most of you wouldn't even try it. In fact, I'm guessing that about 95% of you had a visceral gut reaction when I said the words, running is awesome. You felt it in your bones like, oh, no way. Running is horrible. I hate running. And, and there's a part of you that was like, why would I even do that? You know what that feeling is? That is literally hard-heartedness. That is what Jesus is talking about, this feeling of like, ooh, I don't, I don't like that idea. And that's fine. That's okay. You can afford to be hard-hearted about running because I don't really care if you run or not. God doesn't really care if you run or not. But what's interesting is to think about what that feeling does to you, how it works within the inner mechanics of your heart and soul and impacts the way you see and hear and understand. In a lot of ways, it would kind of cut you off from really listening, really thinking about and considering the possibility. It's like, oh yeah, maybe it could be really good. And so if you wanted to be a runner, what would need to change in you is not how much time you have, 
It's not about rearranging your schedule. It's not about buying the right shoes. It's not about trying really hard to be a runner or trying really hard to look like a runner. Only thing that would really matter, the only thing that would need to change to have you actually become a runner is that you would have to want to be a runner. You'd have to believe something different about running. You'd have to want to say or be able to say, this is good, this is worth it. I want to do this because I want to do this. Not because someone told me to, but because I believe it. And I think this is what Jesus is talking about. Like, yes, the response of the soil is important. Yes, what we do is important. But what's more important is what we believe about the seed. This question of do we view God, do we view his kingdom, do we view this abundant harvest that he is growing, do we view that as worthwhile? Do I actually, for real, deep inside, want to be a fruitful person for the kingdom? Do I actually want to hear what God has for me? So again, it's not about trying harder to be the good soil. It's not about trying to rearrange our lives to cut out the thorns and bushes and rocks. There's, there's time for that later. But we have to remember that, that we become good soil more and more, and we will naturally do those other things, and the word will naturally take root in us the more we believe in who the sower is and what the seed is about. So I think in a lot of ways, Jesus is giving us kind of a paradigm, a a process for growth. And and there are three things that he invites us to do. Uh, And the first one is, is we have to believe, again, in the power and the goodness of the seed. Then we listen to what Jesus says, and then we do what Jesus says. Now, this is pretty simple, but I do think a lot of times we skip right to steps two and three. Those are important things to do. Those are good things to do. But what this parable reminds us is that step one has such a deep impact on everything else. And when we talk about this idea of believing in the seed, it's not just a one-time, you know, give my life to Jesus, put my faith in him when I raise my hand, you know, pray the sinner's prayer. It's not talking about that. It's just daily, moment by moment, recognition of who God is and what he's about. And really, the promise is that the more we focus on that, the more we see who God is and what he's about, the more we'll understand how good it is. And so in this series, as we begin to look at the parables It is going to be some hard stuff. There is going to be some challenging stuff. But there's also going to be this beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God is like. And so my challenge for you, my encouragement to you, is to take the time to consider, what do I want? And as we go through this series, to look at the kingdom and increase your desire for just this this good crop that God is growing. And so I really hope that this, this message is not a, a burden. It's, it isn't just a try harder, try harder to want God more. But instead, it's an encouragement that as we look 
at the promise of who God is, as we ask God to help us believe more in who he is, that he reveals more and more to us uh, through his word. So let's pray together.